You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Um, our next writer is, uh, like myself, a, a, an experienced pro in the field, the author of a great many children's stories and novels, young adult novels. How many novels? Oh, I wouldn't say a great many, but five or six. Five or six seems like a great many to me. <laughs> no, you're right. It's not exactly a great many. It's a, a respectable uh, shelf of novels. Uh, what else is I going to say? Nancy Etchemendy's latest book is um, called Cat in Glass, and I, but I don't think you're going to read from that. No. She also has a high-concept uh, novel, which uh, like uh, this maybe is our night for high-concept work, wh- about a kid who, de- who develops an undo button, as I understand, where he like Sorry. do and undo on a computer and is able to alter his environment and relationships. But I think tonight we're going to read uh, something a little, maybe a little more um, in her vein. She's the either two or three-time winner of the Bram Stoker Award, which is like the Hugo, is the Hugo or the Nebula of Horror, would you call it? I'd say the Nebula of Horror. The Nebula of Horror. Uh, let's all welcome Nancy Edgemendi. Thank you, Terry. Um, I'm, I'm going to read from a short story tonight. How long do we have? From 20 minutes. 20 minutes? It's a longish short story, so y- you can sort of just elbow me. No, don't do that. Run out of time. <laughs> no. um, uh, this story is called "Honey in the Wound," and um, it's it's one of the most recent things I've written, and uh, it's always the last thing I've written is always my favorite. <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh, but we can't. We we can't do the whole. It is very long. It is long. Maybe we should read the beginning and the end. No, don't want to read the end. Okay. Because right. this book is for sale out there. Well, then you'll, have to, you'll have to decide. You'll have to decide where to stop because I won't do that. You won't. Can no. you just sort of say twenty minutes? Twenty minutes. Just say. It. <laughs> I don't have a watch. No, uh, don't worry about it. All read right. To, read to you okay. get to where you are, please. Um, I'll read until I find a good stopping spot. There you go. That's the title? Or maybe my husband will say. <laughs> there you go. What's the title? The title is Honey in the Wound. Oh, yes. Um, th- this is a story that uh, I, I was very pleased uh, about this. It, it won um, uh, what turns out to be the very last International Horror Guild Award. That will probably ever be given, <laughs> which was about a year, a little over a year ago. Um, it's a little challenging to read this story because it really cries out for a sort of soft, soft Southern accent, kind of Tennessee or Georgia, maybe. Um, and I, you know, don't have one, and I, you know, spent a little 
time, I was thinking about, well, should I read it with an accent or should I not? And, and I thought, well, I can hear it perfectly in my head. Maybe if I listen to a little Christian talk radio today, I can <laughs> pick up enough of it so I can read it. But I think I'm just going to be better off just reading it and, and try to imagine a little southern accent in there. For the better part of my life, I have borne the circumstances of Avery Channing's death in silence, at first because I wished to forget them, later because I doubted anyone would believe the truth, and later still because I feared I might suffer eternal damnation for my part in the whole terrible business. But time has worked a certain alchemy. I have no greater wish than to die with a clear conscience and the prospect of confessing seems less awful now than it once did. I was only a child. When that is considered, what I did seems easier to understand. I was 10 years old when, on the afternoon of November 13, 1925, we heard a shuffling on the porch, followed by a scream and whimpers. I was in the kitchen at the time, arguing with my mother about Lon Chaney's new movie, the Phantom of the Opera, which was showing at the cinema down the street. Mother said it was hideous trash, and no, I could not go see it. The house was warm and smelled of apple pie. There was a window over the sink, and the reds, oranges, and yellows of the leaves outside were so vibrant that they flowed into the room, permeating it with surreal color. What on earth was that, said Mother, and hurried toward the parlor drying her hands on her apron. She threw the front door open, never pausing to look through the glass. The things we feared, wars and sickness and grief, could not be kept out by doors or locks anyway. Before us stood a clump of sweaty boys. There were four at the bottom of the steps and three on the porch, Charlie Boynton, Will Louder, and between them, their friend, my brother Avery. All of them were scratched and streaked with mud. That wasn't so unusual. They were 12 and 13 years old, and boys play rough. The unusual thing was the silence. No jostling, no laughter, just the whisper of frantic breath. We, we were only playing, said Charlie. It wasn't anybody's fault. His face was tight with the effort it took not to cry. Only then did I notice that Charlie and Will had their arms under Avery in a fireman's carry. His hair hung over his eyes in dark, wet strings. His skin looked pale as bone. He was shivering and grunting with pain. Blood soaked his right pant leg, drip, drip, dripping onto the gray-painted boards in a crimson pool the size of a dinner plate. Mother, it must now be said, knew what it was like to lose a child. My brother George, three years older than Avery, had died in the influenza pandemic at the age of nine. I was very small at the time. I didn't remember much about him, but I did recall mother's eyes on the day of his death. Their emptiness had terrified me, as had the stillness of her hands when I tried to make them hold me. She had the same look about her now, as if she were slipping toward the edge of the earth, beyond which lay a great and nameless abyss. A lone crow yawped from the branches of the chestnut tree across the street. 
A gust of wind rattled the leaves, bringing with it the scent of fear. Mama, I cried, grabbing at her dress. But Avery wasn't dead yet, might still be saved, and he needed her more than I did. She helped the boys lay him down on the porch where the brightening red puddle spread around him. Hester, go get your father. Tell him to bring his bag, she said, her voice so twisted with dread that I only knew it was hers by watching her lips. Yes, ma'am, I said, glad to turn away and run from Avery's bone face and mother's eyes and the blood. Gumtree was a much smaller town in those days than it is now. There weren't but a few thousand people in all of Hamilton County, and most of those lived 50 miles north of us in Ferensburg, which we thought of as the city. My father was Gumtree's only doctor. A lucky thing, you'll say. Perhaps not. If he had been a grocer or a haberdasher, I do not think the horror would have come to pass. Avery would simply have died, and very probably it would have happened right there on the porch. As it was, I changed the natural, the natural course of things by making a headlong dash through the house and down the back steps to the small, separate cottage where my father saw his patients. I found him listening, probably in vain, to the black and shriveled heart of Thomas Thatcher, the owner of Gumtree Bank and Trust, whose flabby, hairy chest I remember to this day. And I wrote this story before the financial problems happened. <laughs> but you'd never know it. <laughs> I tried to tell Father what had happened, but all that came out of my mouth was a mishmash of nonsense. It would have been easier for me to sprout wings and fly to New Orleans than it was to tell him to bring his bag. But I suppose my face must have told the story, for he took one look, snatched up his black satchel, and tore after me as I headed back toward the porch, leaving Mr. Thatcher all a sputter. Father had spent time on the Western Front in the Great War, something Mother had not yet forgiven him for. At age 32, he'd been too old for the draft. He didn't have to go. He volunteered. When George died, Father was 4,000 miles away in a hospital tent in Arlu, tending someone else's son. The war taught him many things, but perhaps the most important was the value of his own children. The next most important was what to do with a leg that looked like Avery's. With a practiced hand, Father applied a tourniquet. He and the boys carried Avery around to the cottage, where Mr. Thatcher, still buttoning his shirt, beat a hasty retreat. There they stretched my brother out in the surgery and tied him down while Father sterilized his instruments and scrubbed his hands. Mother scrubbed hers as well, for he had trained her to assist him with such cases, and like it or not, there was no one else who knew how to help. The boys and I were sent out to wait in the little anteroom. There we sat in misery as the fearsome smell of ether drifted out from under the door. While the first hour passed, they told me the story in whispered gasps, their voices rising now and then in spite of them. They had been playing, it turned out, in the Redfield house, long abandoned, boarded up, and condemned. On a dare, Avery had crept up the broken, sagging stairs to the second story, where, it was rumored, the glowing ghost of old Mr. Redfield had occasionally been seen peering out the window. There in the shadowy master bedroom, Avery was startled, not by a ghost, 
but by a large rat that ran out from under the bed. No doubt it had lived unmolested for years in the stuffing of the rotten mattress and was as electrified by the sight of Avery as Avery was by the flash of something horrid and alive and festooned with cobwebs. He jumped backward, landing hard and off balance on the termite-ridden floor. I have pictured this scene too many times to count. The boards giving way with a splintered crack, his hands scrabbling at wood that came away in them, his scream as he crashed down into the parlor, a milky dust of vermin smut rising around him, bats fluttering from their roosts in the corners of the high ceiling, and above all, how it must have felt when the bone of his legs split and came up like a knife through the muscles and tendons, puncturing the artery. One by one, the boys left to go home to dinners that went largely uneaten. By dusk, there was no one left but me. I thought of walking up to the house for some bread and cheese or an apple. But after all that I had seen and heard, monsters lurked in every shadow. So I sat rigid on a hard white painted chair, listening to the rumble of my stomach and the wind in the trees till fear of the dark overcame my fear of moving and I got up and lit a lamp. I do not know what time it was when father carried me to bed. He and our neighbor, Mr. Hoskins, had already moved Avery on a stretcher to a downstairs room in the house, near enough to the kitchen so he could be easily nursed. By then the artery and the wound had been cleaned and the stitch closed, and stitched closed, the bone set, and a plaster cast applied, and Avery had received a pint of father's blood topped off with an injection of morphine. Still, his groans echoed up the stairwell all night long as if from hell itself. Demons walked my dreams. I woke shivering a number of times, but no one came when I called out. Avery needed our parents more than I. It was to be the unspoken rule for some time to come. Avery's recovery went well at first. Within 24 hours, he was able to eat a little clear broth, and within 48, Charlie and Will were allowed to come for a brief visit. Within 60 hours, I was pressed into service reading pulp westerns and playing endless games of checkers with the invalid to keep his mind off the pain. And within 72, Avery had homework from the inimitable Miss Miller, and he and I were quarreling energetically in the usual way. Things were going along beautifully. Then one evening he developed a fever. Father had left a hole in the cast so air could get to the wound where the bone had broken the skin and by the next morning brownish foul smelling pus bubbled from it. Our patient lay tossing and turning in sheets soaked with sweat. I thought of the red field house the poisoned snow of dust laden with rat filth and dry rot sifting down over Avery's open skin. Just an infection, you'll say. Nothing a 10-day course of antibiotics couldn't cure. But in 1925, antibiotics had not yet been discovered. We were still relying on carbolic acid, scalpels, bone saws, and hope in cases like Avery's. The word infection struck the same fear in the belly then as cancer does now. Father had to remove the cast and clean the wound with carbolic while mother and I did our best to hold Avery still. Even after a dose of morphine and a shot of bourbon whiskey, he thrashed and screamed. 
I held my eyes closed tight and prayed to be forgiven for quarreling with him, and I prayed he wouldn't die, prayed so hard that for some time the rest of the world receded. Someone called my name. The first time I heard it as if in a dream, the second time more clearly, and the third time, as my shoulders were shaken by strong hands, I opened my eyes. It was mother. She pressed a quarter into my hand. Run to Mr. Ursari's, she said. Bring back a honeycomb and hurry. Yes, ma'am, I replied and made a dash for the front door, leaping high over the place where Avery's blood had pooled when they brought him home, traces of which remained. A bank of clouds had rolled in from the north and a cold wind moaned through the trees. I'd forgotten my coat. Goosebumps rose on my skin. Still, I ran and did not turn back. Petrus or Sari's place wasn't far, just down the street and around the corner at the edge of town. He lived alone in a tiny house, little more than a shack, really, on three acres of land dotted with beehives, chicken coops, and peach trees. <coughs> I didn't know him very well, though I felt as if I did, for my friends and I had spent many hours trying to imagine a history that might explain what had brought him to our town and why he stayed. Though the house was small, it was tidy and painted bright, unlikely colors, reds and yellows and blues, irresistible to children. Flattened spoons and bits of glass hung from the eaves so that every passing breeze made music from them. Mr. Ursari himself wore a braided beard, which hid the chestnut brown of his face, and a leather vest incised with vines and flowers the same colors as his house. He didn't speak much, and when he did, his words were so heavily accented it was hard to make head or tail of them. His eyes lay like dark eggs in nests of wrinkles, though there was no sign of gray in his jet black hair. As far as we could tell, there was no Mrs. Ursari, or any sons or daughters, nor had there ever been. But because of his taciturn nature, no one knew for sure. People in Gumtree returned the favor by not having much to do with him. Mother said he wasn't our kind, yet he stayed, and everyone bought his eggs, peaches, and honey, for they were famous far and wide for their flavor. You might think it odd for Mother to send me after honey while my brother lay on what she feared might be his deathbed. Yet it made perfect sense at that time and in that place. The year Mr. Ursari came to Gumtree, Tom Mumford, a local farmer, sliced his leg with an axe. Father treated the wound in the usual way, but in spite of his best efforts, an infection developed and spread. It looked as if Mumford would lose his leg. On the morning of the planned surgery, Father arrived with his tools sharpened and sterilized only to find the infection gone and Mumford seated in bed, dining on ham and grits. According to Mrs. Mumford, Petrus Ursari had stopped by the previous evening with a special piece of honeycomb and instructions to pour some of the honey into the wound and give the rest to Mr. Mumford by mouth. A miracle cure, said the wife. Father pooh-poohed this, saying it was more likely the carbolic acid and blind luck had healed the wound. He'd seen the spontaneous disappearance of infections in the war, not often, but enough to know it sometimes happened. In fact, the fact remained that Mumford's leg was saved, 
apparently by gypsy honey, and the story traveled like wildfire. After that, as much of Mr. Hursari's honey was used on cuts and scrapes as was used on griddle cakes. Not in our house, however, where father denounced the practice as ignorant and harmful and lumped it in the same general category with the Scopes trial, a sorry illustration, he said, of how little respect his countrymen had for science and reason. When I arrived at Mr. Ursari's door, I pounded on it with both fists and called his name, but I got no answer. I opened it a crack and called again, still no answer, so I stepped inside. The house was warm, something savory simmered in a kettle on a small wood stove. A coppery beam of sunlight found its way through a break in the clouds to spill across a simple table cluttered with bread and green apples. I could not see a single square inch of wall space that wasn't occupied by some object. Pots and pans hung everywhere, crucifixes, a violin, dried herbs in tied bum bundles, a mummified frog, a photograph. I stepped closer. The picture showed a family, mother, father, and three children, one a babe in the mother's arms. They had the stiff look of people dressed in clothes they didn't wear often, intricate with embroidery and starched lace. The man was Mr. Ursari. Tucked under his arm was the violin. Who were they, I wondered, those others, and why were they not here with him now? Not far from the picture stood a shelf that ran from floor to ceiling. Jars of golden honey were ranked upon it, glowing in the slanted sunlight, each one labeled in careful but indecipherable script. Some of the jars had beeswax combs in them, others did not. I was about to pick one, trusting to Providence, and leave the quarter on the table when someone behind me said, Good day, may I be of service. I knew before I turned around that it was Mr. Ursari. His voice was unmistakable, foreign, musical, tinged with the same sorrow as his eyes. Oh, Mr. Ursari, thank goodness, I said. I need some honey for Avery. I'm in the awfulest rush. Ah, yes, of course, said Ursari, as if he already knew the whole story, and perhaps he did. In the town of Gumtree, we all knew one another's business. It's just that I couldn't recall any visitors that day who might have carried news of Avery's condition abroad. He reached a jar from the shelf, not the one I would have taken, and knelt to fold my hands around it. It is made from the nectar of lilies in a place known only to my bees. This is the last jar. I pray it is powerful enough, but he held me in a gaze that pierced my heart, his face lined with some unspoken burden. Know that if God wants him, it is best not to stand in the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have a quarter. Keep it, replied Orsari. Did you understand what I said? I nodded, though in fact his warning made very little impression on me at the time. Thank you, I have to get home. Of course. I turned back through the door and down the worn stairs, torn by a desire to hurry and the need to be careful of the treasure I cradled in my cold, skinny arms. The last jar of lily honey from a place known only to bees and the last remnant of hope for my brother. So that's 20 minutes. Oh. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.